The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode takes us to Yale University, where a Ph.D. student was the target of a violent act. In 2009, 20-year-old Annie Lay was a graduate student in pharmacology at Yale. She had grown up in California in a very close-knit family of Vietnamese immigrants, and she was largely raised by her aunt and her uncle. Although Annie was very petite, she was a superstar from the get-go. She was the valedictorian of her high school class, which voted her the most likely to be the next Einstein. She had attended the University of Rochester on an academic scholarship where she received her undergraduate degree in cell developmental biology. Then it was on to Yale, where she was on her third year of pursuing her doctorate in pharmacology. Annie was part of a research team investigating how enzymes impacted various diseases like cancer and diabetes. Faculty advisor Anton Bennett led the team. Annie was engaged to Jonathan Wadowski. They had been introduced by mutual friends at Rochester. The two had gone on to separate graduate schools. Jonathan from Long Island was a graduate student at Columbia University. The two visited often taking commuter trains up the New England corridor. Their wedding was scheduled for September 13th in Syosset, New York. 160 people were on the guest list. Tuesday, September 8, 2009, was a busy day on campus. Annie left the apartment she shared with several roommates and went to her office in the Sterling Hall of Medicine, which was one of the Yale buildings. She then went to the research lab, as she did every day. This was in the basement of the new research building located at 10 Amistad Street in New Haven. One of Annie's roommates called the police when Annie had not returned by 9 o'clock that night. Annie was missing. Annie's purse sat on the desk in her office in Sterling Hall of Medicine. In it was her phone, credit cards, and cash. When word got out that there was a student missing and that her wedding day was imminent, there were, of course, rumors that she had maybe gotten cold feet and fled to avoid confronting her fiancé. Of course, there were rumors like that. She would leave her bag behind and everything. She would just flee out there, of course. Yep. But, Megan, anyone who knew Annie thought that this was absurd. She was absolutely thrilled to be getting married. She adored her fiancé, and she was an adult, a pragmatic scientist who faced problems head-on. 
Besides, as you mentioned, why would she have left without all of her personal items? She would not have. Annie's family and fiancé were contacted, but they had not heard from Annie. Worried, they all began the trip to New Haven. Meanwhile, police talked to Annie's colleagues and roommates and treated the case as a missing person. As such, police quickly gathered surveillance footage from the 70 cameras, including all of those both inside and outside the building where the lab was, and they started reviewing it at the locations where they had learned that Annie had routinely visited. They have footage of Annie swiping into the building that Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. She was wearing a green t-shirt and a brown skirt and was carrying her lab notebook. Do we know if Annie had a car? Um, I'm not sure, but from what it sounds like, she lived on campus and worked on campus, so I would imagine she walked okay. to work or maybe took like campus transportation. Okay. The police watched over 700 hours of video, waiting for footage of her leaving the building. However, that never happened. As stated by Kimberly Mertz, the FBI special agent in charge, quote, we have not confirmed an exit. So it was clear that Annie had gone to the lab building, where she was one of the students who worked with the lab animals, where she would conduct experiments for the School of Medicine. But it seems as though she had never left. Oh, boy, that changes things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. The two-year-old building 10 blocks from the main Yale campus and next door to Yale New Haven Hospital was described as having very tight security. This wasn't like the school library where you had a bunch of students kind of hanging around. There were only a select few people who had access to the lab building and even fewer had access to the research labs where the animals were kept. The building security was airtight and it was only a two-year-old building. So it was ultra modern and it was super high tech. Well, I have to imagine they had all great security surveillance then as well. Yeah. It, I mean, it collected digital records of pretty much everything that happened inside. One fellow grad student described the building as having three levels of security to get into the basement where the lab animals were. Now, this included gerbils, monkeys, cats, dogs, sheep, fish, and more than 4,000 mice. Card swipes were required for students and faculty to not only enter the building, but each individual room. So it's clear someone did not just walk off of the street and grab Annie. It had to be someone who had access to the building. This made her disappearance all the more mysterious and concerning. This too, but were they searching the were they searching the building? I mean, because it didn't look like she left, were they uh, tearing this building apart? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it seems like the building is their main focal point okay. here. And several law enforcement agencies quickly joined the search for Annie. So you had Yale and New Haven police forces, and then you also had the FBI and the Connecticut State Police. Overall, they had over 100 officers who interviewed 200 people and gathered more than 150 items. But no sign of Annie. Four days after Annie disappeared, officials held a news conference outside Woodbridge Hall. Now, they admitted that they found some potential evidence, but they would not address what it was. But we now know that they were referring to bloody items of clothing that had been hidden in the ceiling tiles and in other places in the Immaculate Lab building. The clothes were currently being analyzed to see if they could be linked to Annie. Although, interestingly, they were not the ones that she was believed to have been wearing based on the surveillance footage. And of course, the whole lab building was be being treated as a crime scene. I'm wondering if anyone was spotted on surveillance leaving with a big bag, a suitcase, something, anything to transport a body as well. That's just what I'm thinking. They also had a wider search going. They had law enforcement over at a waste processing facility outside of Hartford where New Haven's trash would typically be sent. 
As international media descended on the campus, causing disruption and chaos, Yale desperately offered a $10,000 reward for information about Annie. But when Annie remained MIA on Friday, her family notified guests that her wedding would not be taking place that weekend. And as an aside, a little bit of irony, Annie had recently written an article for the student magazine on how students could avoid being the victims of crime in New Haven. The article appeared in February, just seven months before her disappearance. Now, investigators were stumped about what could have happened to Annie. It's kind of reminiscent of the Brian Schaefer case. Do you know that case, Megan? Where he was seen on video arriving at the Ugly Tuna Saloon, but never left. I... I don't know that case. Do you? Yeah. If you look it up, it'll um, you'll probably remember it. It was the reason why that story is similar to this is you have surveillance footage of somebody entering a building, but never leaving. And there's no trace. Okay. Anyway, back to Annie. Surveillance video and card swipe records showed that Annie had entered room G13. Now, this is the lab where she worked with the mice. She also had entered some other locations in the building. But again, she had never actually left which means she had to be there somewhere. Megan, as you suspected, you know, or as you suggested, maybe they would notice someone on surveillance bringing out a bundle of some sort, but absolutely nothing in those videos. Mm. So that led them to believe that she must be in that building somewhere. And on September 13th, just a few days after Annie was last seen, something in the lab building basement started to smell. And police knew that smell because they were smelling a decomposing body. But they couldn't find it. They had searched every cabinet, cart, box, closet, and so on. So at this point, they had to pull the blueprints for the lab building and pour over the plans to see if there were any maybe small spaces where Annie could be trapped. They then brought in Max, the cadaver dog. Mm. Now, he was working with the Connecticut State Police. And Max had been sent to the Hartford area garbage dump where, again, Yale's trash was sent to sniff for Annie's body. But now they were bringing him to the building where he went straight to the wall of a locker room bathroom and he alerted his handler. Six days into the search, Annie's wedding day brought terrible news. At 5 p.m. on Sunday, a body was found inside a, quote, chase in a wall of the lab building that Annie had been seen entering on video. Now, a chase is a small space left behind a wall for utility pipes, cables and wires This one, where Annie was obscured, was in a locker room used by the students and techs where they would change and store their personal possessions. This also should tell you something about the offender, because you'd have to know this building really well to find this space. You sure would. Now, it was hard for the police to even get to it. I mean, they had to remove a panel and a wall in the locker room bathroom. The panel covered a space behind a toilet. And unfortunately, that's where they located Annie. Now, this was a very small space. Um, It's almost as if she was crushed in there. The space was eight inches deep, and it was covered by a metal panel the size of a computer screen. It also housed a vertical and horizontal water pipe. So her killer had to maneuver the body around the pipes. And as I mentioned, Annie was very petite, but it still was shocking that somehow the perpetrator was able to get her entire body shoved into the space she was found upside down. So it definitely seems like it would take a lot of work to get Annie in that space. Although the body had not yet been formally identified, it was clear to everyone that this was Annie. And her death was declared a homicide. She had been strangled. 
The official cause of death was traumatic asphyxia caused by neck compression. It would later be revealed that Annie also had a broken jaw and a broken collarbone, both of which occurred when she was still alive. Brutal. She also had a bruise on the back of her head as if she had been hit with something. And now officials knew that she was killed by someone with access to that building. It had to be another student, an employee, or faculty. A Yale spokesperson said that the murder did not appear to be random. But even though the spokesperson tried to calm people down by saying it wasn't random, everyone on the campus was reeling because they knew what Annie being discovered meant. It was highly likely that a Yale affiliate was the one who killed Annie. So this was unthinkable for everybody on the Mm -hmm. campus. And now a brief word from our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The police and the FBI were already way ahead. On the 15th, they announced that they had their sights on a person of interest, Raymond Clark III, age 24. The New Haven police chief announced that Raymond was in custody but was not arrested and was still being considered a person of interest, not a suspect. This was because they had to wait for some lab results to come back, which was kind of ironic given that Raymond was a lab technician. The police had obtained a warrant for his hair, saliva, and fingernails. They also searched his apartment and impounded his car. They were looking for anything linking Raymond to the crime and a possible DNA match to some of the items found at the crime scene. Who is he? Are you going to tell us who he is? Before I tell you who he is, I want to tell you how they came around to him. Yeah. So police had first become suspicious of him during their processing of the crime scene. According to a very lengthy police affidavit, which which the New York Times had obtained, while police were searching the lab where Annie was known to work, Raymond drew attention to himself by going in and out of lab rooms more than 50 times in one day, which is way more than the usual movement. He also busied himself but stayed close to the officers. For example, while officers were in Annie's lab room, he entered and started vigorously cleaning under a sink area that already appeared to be clean. Um, wait, they, sorry, the labs weren't closed. This is a crime scene. Shouldn't it all be locked down? Yes, that is a very good point. And the experiments were not shut down because even though it was a crime scene or a potential crime scene, Yale had to make sure that police recognized that the experiments that were being conducted, they couldn't just be paused, that there were strict protocols on procedures and methods. And these had to remain in place in order for the experiments to be preserved. Now, we're talking millions of dollars and scientific breakthroughs being on the line. So because of that, the police allowed essential lab techs and grad students to kind of do what they need to do. But the police would shadow them. I see. This would work out to their benefit because that's how they came to observe Raymond, who was right in front of them most of the time, acting very strangely. So he goes through all that trouble, you know, to disguise this crime and then puts himself right square in their, you know, Sites. Well, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. Good. If it's him, I'm glad. Yep. Yep. Officer Sabrina Wood watched as Raymond walked into the lab and noticed a box of wipes on a metal cart. The box was spattered with apparent blood. 
He quickly moved the box so that the bloodied side was out of police view. Then, according to the Times, he leaned against the cart and started making small talk. But, unbeknownst to Raymond, Officer Wood was there because of the wipes. This was on the 10th. Annie had only been missing for 36 hours at this point. So they were still trying to piece together where she had gone that day and whether she had gotten cold feet or what was going on. And that's when a student notified the police that there was blood on a box of wipes in the lab. So Officer Wood had actually gone there to check it out and was waiting for the FBI to arrive when Raymond came in and started acting suspicious. So basically, she was there for the exact evidence that he was trying to conceal. While waiting for the FBI, the officer asked Raymond about Annie, and he said he knew who Annie was. He told the officer that he saw Annie leaving the lab at lunchtime, and he said that she was carrying her lab notebook and some mouse food. Officers noticed something else during their small talk with Raymond. He had scratches on his face and on his left arm, to which he casually told the police it was from his cat. Law enforcement officers who were searching the lab area found a bloody lab coat in a recycling bin. They had taken some of Annie's personal items from her apartment and extracted her DNA from them. This enabled them to compare the blood on the lab coat to her DNA and determine that it was her blood on the coat and also on the wipes box that Raymond had been trying to hide. Eventually, tests would also show that there had been blood on the wall of the lab, but someone had washed it off. Mm -hmm. Annie was found behind the wall in a different room from the lab where police suspected that her life had been ended. Somehow, Raymond had been able to kill her, relocate and hide her body, and clean up all during a busy work and school day, with authorized personnel moving throughout the building. Well, that explains why he was in and out of rooms, though, 50 times. He had to keep going back, concealing items, moving things slowly, you know, bit by bit. Exactly. That's very brazen, too. I just Mm want to point that out. Despite thorough searches of the lab building and of Raymond's home, police were never able to locate Annie's shoes or her lab notebook. By just a few days after Annie vanished, police knew that this was a criminal case and Raymond was their target. So they started shadowing Raymond on Saturday the 12th. This would be the day before Annie was found. They followed him as he went to his parents' home and went to a local fair. By Monday, they made the decision to let him know that they were following him. They started parking outside his apartment and strolling around. In fact, they tailed him everywhere he went. They weren't you know, they weren't trying to stay out well, of sight. We've talked about this you, on women in crime. So this is a type of surveillance. And it's not meant to surveil. I mean, yes, it is. But it's really meant to apply pressure on a suspect. Like, yes, we're here. We're following you. You're on our radar. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Yep. And on Tuesday night, they finally hauled him in to submit samples pursuant to a warrant. He cooperated and went to the crime lab with the police officers where he submitted to the DNA and hair testing, and he was also questioned by the FBI. During this interview, he did invoke his right to counsel. There are some reports that he also failed a polygraph while in custody. Okay. But he was released after five hours. So they're not arresting him. But he's a suspect. Th- they're questioning him, yeah. but they, he's invoked mm-hmm. and he does, they don't have enough to make an arrest yet. Not yet, but a few days later, they would. By Thursday, New Haven police spokesperson Joe Avery said that Raymond's arrest was imminent. So what did he do at Yale? Was he also a lab um, technician or did he 
Did he work in the building for some other reason? It seems like he had to know the building well. Yes, he was employed by Yale working as a lab technician, and so were those who surrounded him. His fiance worked there, so did his sister and her husband. They both also worked as animal research techs at Yale. In fact, his sister was the one who got him the job after his high school graduation in 2004. Okay. It was competitive. He had the title of animal research technician, but his position was at least partially custodial in nature. Now, the techs had to hoist and clean the cages of hundreds of animals, actually thousands if you include all the mice. They had to lug massive bags of bedding and food. They mixed and disposed of chemicals and sterilized and replenished lab supplies. And Megan, the worst part of it all, they had to euthanize the animals. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, this would happen on a daily basis. And it was so traumatizing. In fact, the school provided counseling to the techs because of the PTSD often associated with having to perform this. But regardless, the technician role was an important one because they were charged with being advocates for the experiment animals and enforcers of the strict rules about the treatment of the animals. So they were charged with making sure the animals lived in a healthy environment. They were well-fed, comfortable, clean, and healthy. The technicians also ensured that all documentation was properly executed and filed. Now, this job has been described as very stressful. You know, they have a big job here because these are expensive and elaborate experiments that relied on the protocols that were adhered to by the techs. So the labs had to be organized and spotless at all times. The conditions had to be perfect, the correct temperature, the correct sanitation, and so on. So accordingly, the pay was competitive, as much as $25 per hour. The tech's resumes were required to include working with animals. And Raymond had told a coworker that he had fudged his by saying he worked on a farm when he had not. He also had not gone through a criminal background check. Why not? Although, Megan, Yale did make those mandatory after this murder. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm not sure why it wasn't mandatory, but at the time it wasn't. But he didn't have a record. So even if they did a background search, they wouldn't have found much. However, there was an incident that we'll discuss in just a moment. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Now, Raymond grew up in Brantford, Connecticut, which is a modest blue-collar coastal town, where in high school he was in the Asian Awareness Club, the Interact Club, which helped raise awareness of social problems, and was a quarterback and pitcher on his high school teams. All that seeming success belied a very humble upbringing in a working-class neighborhood and family. His parents' home became run down and they moved to a condo. His mother worked at Walmart and his father was in the trades. Raymond wasn't going to go to Yale. He was just going to work there at a fairly low level. And Raymond was not well-liked at Yale either. Hmm. He was abrasive and unpleasant. He would note a transgression. The example was given of a graduate student who neglected to wear shoe covers or tie his gown. But he wouldn't just point it out. He would berate the student and be very demeaning. And he wouldn't let it go. He was even said to antagonize the students if he perceived them as acting cavalier toward rodent handling regulations. 
One research team had told the New York Times that he had filed a formal complaint about Raymond's rude behavior. A former housemate also described him as very unsociable. It seemed that Raymond might have had a chip on his shoulder. He would scour at animal cages and deal with biological waste from labs while the Yale students would work on the experiments and they would kind of look past him. So maybe he felt like he was, you know, I was just going to point that out. He just sounds very resentful, very Mm -hmm. angry. But other than Raymond's resentful demeanor toward the grad students in general, there was no indication that he actually knew Annie at all. Of course, they worked in the same building, but that was the only connection that police could find. With Raymond being a tech and Annie being on a research team, they would be expected to spend some time in the same places, but their interaction would be expected to be the minimum amount required for efficient support of the experiment. Yeah, but this also could have been a situation where she was one of the people who he felt either rebuffed him or made a comment that demeaned him. You know, it could have been something slight in anyone else's mind Mm -hmm. that was perceived as massive to him and triggered him. I agree. Now, there was that one incident in Raymond's past that I hinted at a moment Mm -hmm. ago. Although he didn't have a criminal record, he did have a tendency of violent behavior. According to the New York Times, in 2003, during his senior year, his girlfriend at the time complained to school authorities that when she had broken up with him, he confronted her. It's unclear why the police were involved, but the school authorities were the ones who called them. The police report said, quote, at one time, the subject did force her to have sex with him. The girlfriend declined to press charges, so the whole thing went away. But she would later tell Good Morning America that she tried to leave the relationship because, quote, he would get angry very often. He would frighten me. He would get physical. She said that after she reported him, police escorted her from the school to her car for two weeks because she was so afraid. But in general, high school classmates recalled Raymond as a as a hard worker, a good athlete, a competitor, and a good student who also had several friends. And there was also nothing in Raymond's employment history that could lead anyone to believe that he was capable of a crime like this. And the Lab Tech Workers Union that Raymond was a member of had no record of any complaints or disciplinary issues involving him. On Tuesday, September 15th, police showed their hand and Raymond was brought in for questioning and asked to provide biological samples. As I mentioned before, they let him go initially, but instead of going to his apartment or his parents' house, he went to a Super 8 with his dad. Now, it's unclear what his father knew, but he later indicated that Raymond was despondent over what he had done. He basically knew that his days were numbered. Mm. Meanwhile, police watched him the whole time. They stayed parked right outside of his hotel room, and they would also stand right outside the window. They hoped that he would just give up and agree to talk, but he didn't. He would close the shades and ignore them. Finally, at 8 a.m. on Thursday, September 17th, Raymond was arrested at the motel by a swarm of state and federal agents. Raymond was arraigned the same day, and bail was set at $3 At this time, he did not enter a plea. Meanwhile, police raided his apartment and removed a lot of possible evidence, including computers and clothing. The police chief made a statement to the effect that they had lots of evidence against Raymond and that there were no other suspects. Megan, here's just a little list of the evidence that they had. Mm. A, A bloody sock found in the lab building ceiling had DNA on it that matched both Raymond and Annie. A pair of bloody boots labeled Ray C was found in the lab building locker room. A green pen was found with Annie's body. 
Raymond had used green ink on his lab sheets that morning, but but in the afternoon, the ink he used was black. The pen also had Annie's DNA on the shaft and Raymond's inside the cap. Surveillance footage showed that Raymond changed clothes three times that day, and footage taken after the time the murder was believed to have occurred showed him with his face in his hands as if he was in anguish. When police searched his belongings, they found traces of blood on his kitchen floor and inside his car that he drove to work that day. Now, there was no indication as to whether the blood was Annie's or Raymond's, but they did find blood. Mm -hmm. Additionally, Raymond's swipe card records show that he had entered the lab when Annie was there and hadn't left for 45 minutes. He then used his own and Annie's cards to move around as he hid the evidence and cleaned up. Annie's email address was found written in Raymond's locker, although there are no official reports of the police ever tracing actual electronic communication between the two. Although a source did tell ABC News that Clark had emailed Lay to complain about her leaving dirty mice cages behind after one of her studies. Again, it was noted that part of Raymond's job was that he was supposed to email students about their lab behaviors and actions if they did not follow the established protocols. That was the only evidence of the two ever corresponding. I mean, they have plenty of other evidence. And then, of course, there was the DNA evidence. And then finally, what everyone was waiting for, an indication as to what the motive was. Annie had been found with her shoes and socks removed and her bra pushed up and her underwear down. Semen was also recovered from Annie's body, and the DNA matched that of Raymond Clark III. Based on what you said, it's unfortunate, but I don't think it's a surprise that she was unfortunately sexually assaulted by him. And this seems to keep in line with his previous behavior. Chief Lewis categorically ruled out any romantic relationship between Raymond and Annie, which had been the subject of rumors as people wildly speculated about the murder. So at some point, people were wondering if they were in... um, A consensual relationship, but no, that was not the case. This was, according to the chief, workplace violence. But we don't really know what happened because Raymond was not talking. Was there a confrontation? Was there an argument? Was there maybe a crush? It's just unknown. Also, police had not explained the details about the autopsy and whether Annie was strangled manually or with a ligature. It is worth noting, though, that Raymond's lanyard which hung his electronic key card around his neck, was missing and was never found. In addition, the shoelaces to the bloody boots that said Ray C on them that were found in the locker room, those shoelaces were missing and never found. After Raymond's arrest, his parents, Raymond and Diane, quietly stood by his side, as did his fiance. His fiance stood by his His side, huh? I have to imagine um, in the beginning she did not know the extent of the evidence that they had against him. Well, we'll see. I mean, she said, quote, he is a bit naive, doesn't always use the best judgment, definitely is not the best judge of character, but he is a good guy. He has a big heart and tries to see the best in all people all of the time. Raymond appeared in Connecticut State Superior Court on October 6, 2009. And his lawyer made a statement indicating that Raymond planned to plead not guilty. Reporters in the courtroom observed that he appeared meek and scared. He was being held at a maximum security prison in Connecticut pending trial since he could not afford the large bail that was set against him. A pretrial hearing in the spring of 2010 addressed all of the discovery in the case, including all of the video surveillance footage, 
over 1,000 photographs, and lab results on more than 200 items that Raymond's public defender had to go through. The trial was still a long way off, but after the hearing, Raymond's family spoke to the media for the first time. His parents, along with his sister, gathered in the courthouse hallway while Raymond, his father, read a statement that he had written on a piece of paper. This from the New Haven Independent, quote, The father said the family and friends came to court to support Raymond Clark III, whom we know to be a loving, caring, kind-hearted son, brother, fiancé, and friend, unlike the picture that has been painted of him. The father declined to answer any further questions and asked that the family's privacy be protected. Standing among the supporters was the suspect's fiancé, who had lived with him at the time of the killing. Police did end up taking um, a sample from her as well, but she was never considered a suspect in the crime. And at the time, according to the suspect's father, she still remained engaged to Raymond Clark. So Raymond's family was prepared to support him through a trial, but the evidence was overwhelming. And it seemed that Raymond wanted to avoid it all coming out in a public trial because in March of 2021, he pled guilty to murder and attempted sexual assault. He agreed to a sentence of 44 years. Per the New York Times, the attempted sexual assault plea was an Alford plea, meaning that he acknowledged that there was evidence of the crime, but he did not admit guilt. The prosecution had not previously released the information about the sexual assault, and there's no doubt that Raymond was anxious to keep that from coming up at trial. After the plea hearing, his father addressed the public yet again. I wonder what his tune or what he would say this time. Quote, He expressed condolences to the Lay family. The Clark family is heartbroken, but proud of Ray for taking responsibility for his actions, the father said. He said his son had expressed extreme remorse from the very beginning in conversations with the family. I can't tell you how many times he sobbed uncontrollably, telling me how sorry he is, telling me how his heart is tortured by the reality that he caused the death of Annie. And now a brief word from our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. At Raymond's sentencing in June of 2011, Annie's family was given the opportunity to address the court. Her mother talked about how excited Annie was for her wedding and how her dreams were ripped away by the defendant. She said, quote, I will only see Annie in my dreams. Annie's father was unable to get through his prepared statement and a victim's advocate had to read it for him. It was short and simple, thanking those who had supported the family during the tragic aftermath of Annie's murder. Recall she was brought up by her aunt and uncle. Annie's uncle read a statement on behalf of him and his wife, quote, I wish to ask the court to sentence Raymond Clark to forfeit every day of his natural life as Annie did at his hands and nothing less in prison. According to reporters in the courtroom, Raymond was visibly emotional as the victim impact statements were given. Raymond himself finally made his own statement in the courtroom in front of his family and Annie's whole family. Oh, I was waiting for this. I'm very curious what he has to say. He said, almost whispering, quote, I take full responsibility for my actions. 
I alone am responsible for the death of Annie Lay and causing tremendous pain to all who loved and cared about Annie. I am truly sorry I took Annie away from her friends, her family, and most of all, her fiancé. I've always tried to do the right thing and stay out of trouble, but I failed. I took a life and continued to lie about it while Annie's friends, family, and fiancé sat and waited. I really never wanted to harm anyone or cause emotional pain to anyone. All I wanted was to be a good son, a good brother, and a good fiancé, but again, I failed. I blame only myself, and there are no excuses for what I have done. Annie was and will always be a wonderful person, by far a better person than I will ever be in my life. I'm sorry I lied, I'm sorry I ruined lives, and I'm sorry for taking Annie Lay's life. Too little, too late. You don't always see offenders taking any responsibility. So um, it's nice to see in this case that whether it's, you know, whether it's truthful or not, I don't know how pure it is, but, but hopefully it gave Annie's family some sense of comfort. I mean, we can only hope so. You're right, though. It's rare to see offenders um, who will stand up and accept full responsibility. I still wish that, even though I suspect they know the motivation, I I really suspect he was just very resentful, very angry. Um, He had a history of sexual assault against women. Probably, actually, I would have um, suspect that he was even more resentful of a woman uh, being in a higher power position. But I wish he had almost said, like, that he saw her once before, you you know, I, I don't know, this happened spontaneously. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew kind of why or how it happened, but mm-hmm. I guess you don't always get that, so. No. Raymond's father also read a statement extending, quote, my family's deepest sympathies to the Lay family. The grief and tears we shed are equal for your family as well as ours. The events of September 2009 devastated two families and shocked a nation, No parent can imagine or prepare for losing their daughter to violence or having their son commit such a horrible crime. He continued to say that his son grew up in a loving and supportive household. And I say this to underscore how shocked we were to hear that Ray committed this horrible, senseless offense. This is not the Ray we know and raised. We can't explain or make sense of this. I know that we will never understand, as I know that Ray does not understand how this could have happened. The judge addressed Raymond, telling him that he ruined two families' lives, Annie's and Jonathan's. That was her fiance. Ruined. The imposed sentence for murder. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that he ruined three families' lives, including his own, but go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The imposed sentence for murder, 44 years to serve for attempted assault, sexual assault in the first degree, 20 years to run concurrently. So effectively, he got 64 years. Raymond was remanded to the Cheshire Correctional Institution, and he is scheduled for release on September 16th, 2053. According to Yale Alumni Magazine, after the murder, Yale announced that they were taking steps to increase security. This despite the fact that security was already very tight in the lab building, and Yale already had more than 400 blue light phones in outdoor spots. They widened the pool of employees who would be required to submit to criminal background checks. And the university updated its workplace violence policy, requiring employees to report any perceived workplace threats or violence. After Raymond's arrest, Yale was anxious to deflect blame for the incident. After all, you have an employee who killed a student, and therefore Yale could be deemed responsible. The president at the time issued a statement that said, in part, that the murder could have happened in any city, in any university. It says more about the dark side of the human soul than it does about the extent of security measures. 
I mean, I hate to say it, but in part that might have been true in this case, simply because I think he was a ticking time bomb. And it's really hard to detect with they had a lot of security measures, you know, even if they ran the criminal background check, which I think they should have, they wouldn't have probably picked him up. So I do think this is, you know, Mm -hmm. this uh, unfortunately, there might be some truth to that statement, even if we don't like it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, nothing in his record indicated that he was capable of this kind of act. So we don't how can we really know? But the Lays were not deterred from filing a civil lawsuit against Yale, which they did almost exactly two years after Annie's death. Now, the lawsuit cited systemic sexual harassment and sexual assault in the Yale community and claimed that the school was on notice yet had done little to mitigate it. Well, that we don't that we didn't hear about or don't know about. So if that's the case, that does change things. But go ahead. Yeah, so it continues, the school took, quote, inadequate steps to ensure the safety and security of women on its campus, and Annie's death was a culmination of the dangerous environment. So the lawsuit was supported by the fact that the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights had recently announced that it was investigating complaints by Yale students that the university had failed to respond to sexual harassment concerns. So that's where that came from. Okay. Furthermore, the lawsuit contended that Yale should have known that Raymond was dangerous since he had previously demonstrated aggressive behavior and a violent propensity towards women. In a statement, Yale officials said, quote, Yale had no information indicating that Raymond Clark was capable of committing this terrible crime and no reasonable security measures could have prevented this unforeseeable act. Nonetheless, Yale settled with the Lays in 2016 Yale would pay the family $3 million to settle their claims. Yale would pay the family $3 million to settle their claims. Megan, I I think this is one of those cases that unfortunately, you know, this is clearly senseless violence, but it's unclear how any policy or procedural changes could prevent this from happening again. I am glad that the university did take some steps such as increasing background checks and and changing their sexual harassment policy. So I am happy to see that. But unfortunately, this is not one of those cases where we can clearly point to one error that led to this horrific event. Yeah, there are some cases that are really a perfect storm that creates a tragedy. I mean, the saving grace here is in this case that he was the perpetrator was identified and will be incarcerated probably for the rest or rest of his life. And so he won't be able to harm another woman, which he very well may have gone ahead and done had he not been apprehended. That's a good point. All right. Thank you for listening today. And we hope you will join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.